It's more about creating something in between that kind of gives like uh, different aspects of it. That is one thing. Beyond that, I guess the one function of memes is to just say that the emperor has no clothes when that needs to be said. I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, the podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. For the last few years, if you like art and are on Instagram, then you probably know the account Freeze Magazine. That's freeze spelled with an E, like, help me, I'm freezing, not with an I, like the popular art magazine and art fair. It's certainly not the first art meme account, but with now more than 160,000 followers, Freeze Magazine has gained a particularly large audience by turning the lens of internet humor on the foibles of the art world. Sometimes it pokes fun at inscrutable art speak or vents relatable artist insecurities. Other times it uses the meme format to more cutting effect, criticizing the poor treatment of artists and workers who are at the lower rungs of the art world hierarchy. Importantly, in the years since the account blew up, the creator behind it, who goes by Chem A, has done something fairly unlikely. He's made the jump from meme making to exhibition making. Based on his unique Instagram voice, Jem has been tapped by high-profile institutions, including the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in Denmark and the Barbican in London, to realize IRL projects that play with the line between digital culture, museum outreach, and conceptual art in clever ways. Known for a funny internet persona, Jem has some quite serious things to say about what it means to use memes as a venue for criticism, as well as what it means to take memes seriously as a creative form of their own, and the strange, evolving relationship between social media and art institutions. Jem A., thank you for joining me on The Art Angle. Thank you. So I want to talk to you about Freeze Magazine and all the other projects that have spun out from it, but I want to begin by just setting up an origin story. I mean, you were in London, as I understand it, when this project began. So take me back to the beginning. How did Freeze Magazine begin as an Instagram account? I started in 2019. I believe it was September or like end of August. And I think the biggest milestone in this timeline was the pandemic, because this was like six months before the pandemic has started. Right, right. And of course, there are other accounts, meme accounts that existed before this and continue to do so. And I think they had the relevance and it created a new space for criticism or shared this commentary between art workers, let's say, or like art professionals. But it definitely shifted completely with the pandemic because suddenly all physical spaces were closed and everyone was just on Instagram the whole time. Institutions just didn't know what to do and continue their presence. And suddenly all accounts on Instagram were on the same playing level. And I think that was the moment that really changed things. Yeah, and I think that's important because meme culture is not new. It's been around for a while. There have been other art world meme accounts. But it was kind of the moment of the pandemic that made this into something a little more explosive. Were there examples you were looking at or other people that you were looking to at the time? Yeah, definitely. Like one of my favorites is Art Review Power 100. As far as I understand, they're actually the oldest account as well. Sure. Another Instagram meme account making fun of the Art Review Power 100 list and the hierarchies of the art world. Yeah. And then there's like Jerry Gogosian and then there's 
me, there were some accounts. I think there was like Brain in the Front Seat, if I'm not wrong. This account that was on and off, which was actually great. There are some art school student accounts as well. I actually find art school accounts particularly interesting in their own bubble because I feel like they almost have more potential for change in what they do than like a broader focus. Because it's such a concentrated audience. Yeah, I mean, they're so concentrated. They like really tackle issues that are specific to their school, which could be shared across different ones as well. And speaking to some of them, they also got so much pressure from their schools as well, which you could, I guess, face as a meme page admin. But I think the one that they experienced was very intense and very direct because it's so easy to be revealed as the admin. It's a very different dynamic. It's like a more intense version of doing this. You know, there's a format you're working with. What would you say the specific voice of Freeze Magazine is? I mean, it kind of came out of my frustration with trying to like find my place in the arts world, working, studying, and anyone else who's kind of trying to find their place in this. And it was just filled with frustrations because of, I'm not a EU citizen, then living in the UK, now in Europe, and that comes with many lack of privileges. And that was for me the deciding point of this. So talking about this kind of discrimination or about just the precarity in the art world are, I guess, the strongest themes. It uses these formats that are kind of lighthearted or jokes and image and text formats that people are familiar with. But I think it does have a kind of an edge, you know, and I think maybe that cutting edge is what made it rise above the pack in a certain sense. At this point, it's got enough traction that you've been asked to be on all kinds of panels about issues in the art world. I was watching a panel you were on in Germany about memes versus museums. And you talked about a theory you had about going back and forth between goofy memes and more critical and direct messages to kind of like zigzag between the two, create a soup, you said. So you have a specific strategy of what you're doing in a way. What is that strategy? I guess you can imagine that zigzag in multiple perspectives. Like one is about, let's say, the goofiness or the silliness of the jokes and then the criticism that it involves. Of course, just the meme format in general kind of contains this because whatever criticism you might have, if you can somehow adapt that to a meme format, it just becomes funnier and somehow like sugarcoated. And there were some other factors in that too. Like, for example, I distinctly remember in the beginning of the pandemic, or actually at each lockdown, there was a drop in engagement. And I think that was just because people's moods were lower and probably mine too. So I had to kind of turn up the goofiness during that time just as a coping mechanism. And it changes over time. And of course, these are also very subjective, like feelings uh, that I have. There's so much trial and error, but that's kind of what I try to do. And it might seem as a contradiction to do this online and then to criticize all of these and then do physical projects as well. And this was something that was on my mind a lot when I started getting invitations to do panels, but also exhibitions, workshops, other things. And I think it is possible to imagine a scenario that these things can give power to each other and kind of resonate from each other. Feed off each other. Yeah, that's something I want to get into because I think an extraordinary thing about your position is you've been able to leverage this kind of internet humor from outside the institution to kind of have a purchase inside some of these institutions. But before we get there, 
I do want to talk a little bit about what Freeze Magazine is. I think memes are pretty mainstream in terms of internet humor, and I don't want to, you know, kind of like describing them in a way is like explaining a joke. <laughs> so I don't know if it's going to um, land to unpack them too much in this format. But I do want to give people who haven't seen the account an idea of what it is. So can you just describe your process in creating these memes? First of all, actually, before we even get to that, like just the definition of memes, I actually don't hesitate to describe this because I feel like I know this might sound uncool to people who know what a meme is, and I am in that camp. But at the same time, just for the sake of accessibility, and I think there's no reason to judge people for not knowing what this is, because I think actually anyone is aware of what a meme is, but they just know it in different traditions, let's say, like could be cartoons. For older audiences, I'd call them just internet cartoons or caricatures. What we refer to as a meme now is actually internet memes, and they refer to usually like an image and text composition. They usually found images online, and they involve certain about linguistic templates and like phrases that were replicated, and also images that are replicated. And I think the most important aspect of memes is that they gain meaning through replication. So the more right. you see a joke, the funnier it becomes. Of course, this could also go downhill after that, but that is the process that it uses. And this is also one of the concepts that I apply to the installations or exhibitions I do as well. And when it comes to like the process of making a meme, there are different approaches, let's say, like different ways it can come about. I follow art news a lot in general. So I take notes of different events that happen and try to match them with meme templates. I have like a list of meme templates I use on my phone and like, I follow other meme accounts as well. And one of the aspects of this is also to kind of follow what is happening elsewhere. And that's how your memes are perceived as well. So you might take a meme template from another account, basically, and then make a different variation of that and build on that, continue the conversation that way. You know, I was going to ask you about this because it's sort of fascinating to me, the interface between memes and art, because... I'd say at this point, memes are essentially an art on their own, right? But the standard for what makes them work is different in the sense that like categories like originality, they're not really operative in this context to a certain extent. I mean, these are very standardized formats and kind of the standardization of them is sort of what people connect to. Like there's like really familiar combinations of images, you know, the three Spider-Men pointing at each other, for instance, is something that people who are familiar with this kind of stuff will know immediately. And also there's a kind of collective nature to the authorship about it that's really interesting. And both those things lend themselves to a certain kind of popular dimension. And in your case, I think a kind of like popular tone to the kind of critique that you're doing, because you're kind of speaking with the collective voice and also framing kind of esoteric art world stuff in terms that are, by definition of the form, kind of relatable, right? There are different criteria you could use to analyze a meme. And I think, again, these are also personal things. Like, of course, you can look at it aesthetically. And I think different meme makers have different aesthetic expectations or standards for what they do and different apps they use, like on Photoshop, on the computer, for instance, which feels too odd to me because I find them very like site-specific to the phone experience that I strictly do them on my phone. And there's something about originality, but of course, that's a very slippery concept when it comes to memes. And that could be like, I think more of an internal thing. And because it's also difficult to get in touch with other meme admins as well, like it's happened to me a couple of times, but I think 
people that are very different and like you don't really discuss these things. That's another thing. I would actually add one more thing to the conversation about intersectionality in this, because I think it's possible to basically take on the role of anyone on the internet. You could identify yourself or suggest that you could come from a different background, you could have a different identity. And for me, that's the most difficult part that I find about memes that like, of course, if you repost something, that doesn't mean you're exactly that person who identifies in that meme, because this could have like both racial or gender related references Mm -hmm. and suggestions too. But I think it's possible to do this in a way that you don't misrepresent who you are, but then you could support a cause from your corner, basically, mm-hmm. from your intersection on the chart. I think that's the one thing to consider when looking at this account. And I guess the final thing is about monetization, and that's the most tricky part. My principle in this is not to monetize posts that I make, because for me, making memes is kind of like keeping a journal of things. Like, if I go somewhere, I will make a meme about that anyway, and then if it's a project... I'm interested in like an exhibition I liked, I would make something about it. And this is not about that monetary relationship. There are some accounts that I think these are not really meme accounts, but it's things I've seen. Like they're like really, really big accounts, like with like a million followers, for instance. They tag things, they try to create products and so on, which I find difficult. Right. And just try to keep that close or do it in a way that would be projects I would do anyway. Like I would want to collaborate with people or things without any money involved. And if I could be compensated for the work that I put in, at some point that wouldn't hinder my critical point of view in that, I would take it. Yeah, there's a kind of ethic to it for you about this kind of culture. That's really interesting, which kind of connects, I think, to some of the way I've heard you frame it as, you know, meme culture as digital folklore. In a way, it sort of reminds me of some of the conversations or debates about street art in its early form, about the problems with commercializing it or the ethic of working in public space and being part of this kind of collective art form. It's interesting to me that all that is is in there with something Instagram meme account. I mean, of course, this kind of thinking involves very few people because I think one aspect of memes is also that the process of making them is so invisible to the audiences. You just like receive it in your feed and then that's it. You don't know where it comes from. And I think most people are very clueless about this. So one other aspect of what I like to do is to also do workshops on how to make memes. And this involves using media theory, cultural theory, like talking about a theory and then explaining that concept using a meme, uh, usually something that I made myself. For me, the primary goal is to kind of give people like a, first of all, like a tech literacy in this and also like a meme literacy in how they look at things. And of course, we consume so much news in our feeds as well. And there's, I think, like a more critical point of view we could have in all of this. But again, though, I mean, I feel like that does sort of chime with me with the sort of a street art thing that there's like kind of a culture that part of the point is sharing it in some ways. To me, that was an aspect of your process that was a little bit invisible. Before we move on, I do want to talk about just a labor question because you're putting this stuff out there for free. It is, in one sense, just like keeping a diary. In another sense, it's work. How much work goes into maintaining a account of this size and volume? I mean, that really varies. Like in the pandemic, I had so much time that I could post four or five memes a day and like I was on my phone the whole day and so on. And then as things opened up, this changed. I mean, a meme individually could take anywhere between like literally 30 seconds and like a couple days. I also don't like the idea of like working on a meme too much because you might kind of lose the moment to post it. And also, I think it's hard to imagine like a perfect meme. I think that if the 
thing is 80% ready, I think that's good to go because otherwise you could never fill that remaining 20% and it will be very difficult to post. So I try to also kind of keep an easy heart in that and do it in like a lighthearted way. So it really changes from meme to meme. And what do you think the audience is for Freeze Magazine? Is it insider or outsider or is it consciously a little bit of both when it comes to art? I'm, of course, looking at this from like a biased point of view. And let's say an artwork insider who like works in this field, tries to do things in this field. And I think the majority of the audience is like the art professionals, let's say, or like people who want to be in this art world. But I also like the idea of having some outsiders who learn something from this and like maybe pick up a few of the terms that they could search afterwards and look up and learn what they are. I also find it interesting to follow like meme accounts in very different fields. Like I remember there is like a forklift memes account. There's like a death memes account. Forklift memes. Uh, there is like sex workers as well. There's like other fields and experiences I don't have that I learn so much from just by looking at the memes. And that wouldn't be something I would make for the reasons that I've explained about intersectionality because I don't mm. identify as that. You mean by how they use the format to comment on their own exactly. cultural it's like an world? community that they share different terms that I have never heard of. You almost kind of eavesdrop into like a conversation between two other people and they are lingo in this basically. And I think if you look at it as a third person and like took attention, you could actually see the issues in that, what frustrates them, what they find funny and... This, I think, actually is very potent to learn about a community. Freeze Magazine has 166,000 followers, which is a huge audience. If that were an art show, that would be like an amazing blockbuster hit in a lot of ways. But in the scale of the internet, in the scale of Instagram, it's a modest audience in a way. So what do you think it says about the art world that you've captured so much of its attention at that scale? Um, yeah, it's tricky because I think it has two arguments. One is that it has already reached its audience. It's already successful, quote unquote, and has done this. And the other is to translate this into other formats. And this was actually something that came up in this memes versus museums panel too, that like, I think it was like an audience question about like, then why don't you just quit everything else and just do this? And I think mm. that's like an unrealistic expectation of people about the internet that like, of course, it's very impactful. Uh, you reach... Uh, like a crazy amount of people that wouldn't be possible in any other way. And it, it's a privilege to be able to have this platform. But at the same time, for no one, maybe I guess except YouTube, I assume, because its monetization tools are very strong, it's not possible to live off this or like to be compensated for what you do. Um, I forget now, but I believe there was a term for this in your book as well about how these creators provide so much to platforms, but the platform takes all the money and the data out of this. So it's extension of that. So I think it's a bit unrealistic to expect that this could be your only source for your work, income, everything, and also could be a bias actually to just do that. So I think it could be like a dualistic thing. So like, yes, in on one hand, I'm very, very grateful for this many people following this, not knowing me or like just through what I have made. But at the same time, it is, I find it important to translate this into other formats too. And in that way, it's kind of like a dual situation. I think that's a really important point because I think to a certain extent, people look to internet culture as this promising alternative venue. And certainly uh, influencer is 
by all accounts, one of the most desired professions amongst young people growing up as digital natives. These platforms do kind of hold out these promises that they're not really capable of delivering for everybody. And it's actually sort of interesting what you're doing that it's this kind of digital culture, digital influencer, meme maker, but it works more symbiotically with the community it's critiquing. And I think that's a really interesting note. Was there a moment in this project when you had a breakout or you knew that something new had happened or that you'd found your audience? Difficult to say because, I mean, things grew exponentially like since the very beginning, which still amazes me and I find that I still cannot get used to it. But at the same time, it's difficult to say that there was a specific moment in this because it's been very fast also. But I guess the pandemic, because I think that was a turning point for this without me realizing in that time that like kind of normalized memes into a new place in the art world, let's say. And I suppose it was also a time when people were very dislocated and a certain kind of criticism about the precarity of the creative industries. There was a, a hunger for that. And to a certain extent, the kind of scrappy vibe of something like Freeze Magazine definitely resonated in that moment. You, at this point, have developed a following and a big reputation. And like I was describing before, you've appeared on various panels. You still wear a mask in public, though. Why? Actually, my reason to wear a mask, which I've done like a few times, and since then, I actually like just prefer to be like blurred in documentation of it and like ask people not to take pictures. And this is actually to just stay low and... I have no hesitation to meet people in person. I really like that, and I try to do that as much as possible. But when it comes to online things, I just like the idea of just like staying a bit anonymous in that and having a private life behind this because I had some creepy experiences or some potential creepy experiences, let's say, as well. But then at the same time, I don't want this mask to like turn into like like a quote-unquote like selling point or like a focal point of what I do as well. So that's why I'm very open to, like, as I said, uh, meet people in person. And even this mask actually feels too much and it almost feels counterproductive in this. They actually call this the Barbara Streisand effect, that there is this photographer who takes photographs of the whole LA coastline, I believe. And then mm -hmm. Barbara Streisand sues the photographer for revealing where she lives. And her lawsuit becomes news. And that's why people just look up these pictures. Right, right. Um, so in that way, I kind of want to do this, like, make this as uninteresting as possible and not to turn into a focal point. It's sort of interesting to me too, in the sense that there's a sort of particular kind of voice you're speaking from, which is both personal, but also a little bit more collective, you know, bringing up more collective issues when it comes to the art world. And I guess to a certain extent, the uh, masked identity flatters that kind of idea. Are there any subjects that have gotten the strongest reactions from your audience? I guess precarity is the strongest and like this kind of discrimination in different ways and like hypocrisy are different themes. And they also, I think, lend themselves quite well into like a meme format because if you have like this just good guy, bad guy dynamic in a meme, it's not really funny. It's more about creating something in between that kind of gives like a different aspects of it. That is one thing. Beyond that, I guess the one function of memes is to just say that the emperor has no clothes when that needs to be said. 
So it's a great tool for that. And this can apply to different subjects. Like it could be different news articles. For me, like British Museum is one of the running jokes that I've done for a long time. I like the idea of picturing them as these like bad guys in the arts world as much as possible. And I believe that the power of this could come from like not just like trying to cancel the British Museum, but I think if over time you could paint a picture of them just being this and like this not even being like a discussion, like normalizing this idea could like, actually force them to change this image more since it is an institution and not just an individual. I think it's important to also consider if this is reactionary or responding to a situation because that's also a very blurry thing and also difficult to do as an individual. I also feel like maybe people might perceive the Freeze Magazine page almost as an institution, maybe like multiple people running it, has an editorial process or something, and should comment on everything that's happening in the art world. But if I don't have something to say, like respond, that comes from a sincere place and could have a constructive impact on whatever that subject is, I don't want to just react to something and just call it out and that not leading to anything. Because I think that's an easy role to take as well, to just react to every single thing that happens because there's always so much of it. On the more silly or goofy side, I guess, I think a pretty constant target of the account is art speak, right? The kind of stilted way that art people talk. I was looking at the page and one that made me laugh out loud is one that says like curator writing exhibition text on their phone and what's pictured is this like incredibly long extended iPhone that's like, you know, many feet long with a very detailed text on it, like making fun of how excessive and wordy art press releases for. This is a pretty constant point of commentary for you, which makes for good humor. The art world is pretentious and stuffy and full of buzzwords that people don't really understand. But there's a serious side to that too for you, right? About just about accessibility and the kind of barriers to people participating in art. Definitely. Like, I don't know if this comes across in these memes, but like I find exhibition texts very important. I think they're an important tool of art mediation and criticism and like creating the space. Uh, my frustration is more about how in some cases these texts became like a placeholder and you must have one, even though you have nothing to say in that. And for me, that's the biggest frustration with this, um, to call out situations where I have this test that if the exhibition text makes sense, if you replace the name of the artist, for me, that's a bad text. And I actually even made an exhibition just about this. Like I made this meme, uh, like a guy just thinking, um, could you write an exhibition text that is so generic that could apply to any exhibition? And then I actually ended up turning this into a full exhibition with like, all the walls covered with real exhibition texts and like there's no commentary on that. It's just the fact that you line up these, I think it was almost like a thousand press releases next to each other, already conveys this criticism in their format, in their phrasing, across different languages, different continents. People just kind of agreed on this format so much. And then I also asked friends who work in the field as like curators, writers, even like communication professionals to write exhibition texts that are so generic, really, that could about any exhibition. And I'm very glad that I was able to do this before ChatGPT came out, literally like a few months <laughs> before that, because I think now it's too easy, because I also like the idea of like just these people performing their role in the art world in a like a meta way. And then the idea was that this piece of paper, which has no date or like no mention of the artist's name, if you leave them in any exhibition space, they're so loose that they just work with the exhibition and 
if you were like uninformed, you could really think this was for the exhibition. And my frustration is more about that kind of text rather than like a good piece of art criticism or an exhibition text that really explains what is happening. Yeah, well, that was a question I wanted to ask. And it's a question I just generally have about how meme culture, this kind of critique relates to the art institution, because, yeah, there's this longstanding criticism of what people call international art English and art speak, which sometimes, in my opinion, veers over into a kind of anti-intellectualism. Because I personally think it's great that there's a place where people are interested in philosophy and history, art history, and there's going to be a little bit of a barrier to entry. How you navigate that is one thing. I wonder if you think about that. There's the idea of accessibility, but then there's a kind of anti-intellectualism that sometimes comes in when the art world is held up to ridicule. And I think the meme space is an interesting place to think about that tension. How do you think about that tension? I mean, I definitely see the argument for anti-intellectualism in this, but I think you could also make some argument for writing these loose and blurry exhibition texts as well, because they also almost serve an anti-intellectual purpose in how they kind of clog up a conversation about an artwork or an exhibition in a way that kind of renders you unable to engage, critically engage with an exhibition because it doesn't say anything about it. And I also find that equally anti-intellectual. There's actually a really good book, which was also a reference for me for this by Bank Collective. I guess it was called The Facts Bank, where they take a press releases from galleries and then grade them basically like a school teacher and then fax them back to the galleries. <laughs> and it's amazing because it's like, in some of them, they were even giving like marks out of 10 or something. And some of them, it's just like, it says, these two sentences you used in the last three exhibition texts, for instance, or what does this mean? And like, it was amazing. And I have it as a book, like, because I think this project's from like late 90s. So I think this is also like a recurring problem. That's what I mean by like, these texts becoming a placeholder. Like your motivation to write this text is just the fact that you need it. In the exhibition space, there's a spot for it. That is, I think, the wrong motivation to write anything about that. And it should come from a more intellectual point. And of course, because of the other arguments you could make about any form of expertise. Of course, not every text is accessible to every single person. That is also like the nature of being deep into a subject and be different than other people. But I think those are different things. It's funny, you know, we just did an interview on the podcast with Lucy Lepard, and we were talking about the history of conceptual art and how in the 60s and 70s, some of the aspirations for it, working with things like fax machines and mail art and image and text, making exhibitions in book form, was really popular, you know, was the idea is like, let's find new ways to meet people, and that now conceptual art is kind of a synonym for over-intellectual, inaccessible, elitist. And it's something I write about in my book and your work makes me think about is how the internet kind of almost just organically absorbs some of these strategies of like juxtaposing text and image and memes and repeating images to discover new contexts and information for them. And almost some of the work you're doing in its humor and kind of popular approach recovers some of that early idea of conceptual art from a totally unexpected direction for me. Yeah, I mean, conceptual art is another running joke on the account as well, because I see it sort of as like a shield, like in a similar way to like defend against any form of criticism against art. And I also see that there's like sometimes some ideas are actually imported from other practices, but then just because they're called conceptual art, it's kind of like becomes 
so difficult to criticize it, like engage with it critically. But it's also very nice to hear like these parallelisms also with street art. And this is actually one of the reasons why I don't like hesitate to like describe what a meme is, because I think it's also unfair to, to think of memes in isolation and not think of them as a part of a discourse or like multiple discourses actually, because I like to say that you could trace memes back to practicing artists who also make cartoons like Philip Guston or Ed Reinhardt, which I really like, or this kind of male art or like Fluxus is another, I think, great mm -hmm. parallelism. Uh, or you could talk about Dada and like Duchamp and so on, as well as like Roman era graffiti, like any form of art that occurs in a social space could be seen as a precursor to memes or like memes could be also described from that perspective. So at what point did the success of Freeze magazine start translating into IRL opportunities? As we were coming to the end of the pandemic, let's say, like I did an exhibition in Berlin, which was called The Party at Weserhalle, where I like basically like built a meme in real life, outdoor monitors. This was like mid-2021, I believe, I think August or something. And then other things came up. And I think one of the reasons for that change is also I think people don't know how to approach me since I'm like anonymous. Like I met so many people through just Instagram as friends, as collaborators, just for events. And it has been really crazy to see that, like to be invited to a talk in a place I would never expect, like so far away and wouldn't even realize that they would be looking at this. So out of that, many things came out. So I remember the first time I saw a gem A meme, and it was actually not on Instagram. It was in a physical space. It was at Documenta. It was a poster of this clenched fist with the caption, when people ask me, but where is the art or something about that? That was a exhibition that was very much about what art could be and the collective expanded sense. So yeah, you worked with The Last Documenta as an on-site critic. I know that what you were doing there was called harvesting, which is a term that is new to me. What did that mean? So harvesting refers to artistic recordings of meetings because the exhibition concept Lumung was so much about including people in a process, like a collective process. And the exhibition was only like one translation of this. So in that harvesting plays this role of just documentation of this process because not everyone is involved at every step and like not in every meeting. And these are not done from an objective point of view. These are done from a subjective point of view. And it could take the shape of like sound recordings or like creative writing, illustration, in my case, memes. And these were all different outcomes of these meetings and like what they inspired. And I kind of took on this harvesting concept in other projects too. Like I've become a, like a in-house critic or sorry, embedded critic in that memes versus museum. The symposium that the panel was in, I was following all the panels and then making memes about them, or I've done it in like a few other symposiums as well. I just like to do this in non-profit environments where there's like an intellectual content I would feed from, just like personally learn from, and also have this creative output afterwards. And harvesting basically comes from that. Like you're like a cartoonist there in the room responding to it in real time, basically. Exactly. And I don't know how it would go, especially in like smaller like symposium things, but it's actually been great to also like collaborate with people there, like maybe some of the organizers, but also some of the panelists, like make a meme and then show it to them, get their feedback on it, and then basically turn it into a collaboration as well. And also like really learn from these discussions too. 
So at this point, yeah, you've graduated from gallery shows and even that kind of embedded criticism to working with actual museums. You know, you've worked with the Louisiana Museum in Denmark and the Barbican in London. How did those experiences come about? It seems as if you have a really unique role here that these institutions are looking to you as some kind of hybrid of artist and audience engagement agent who kind of trying to translate or make the art experience resonate with digital natives. Is that right? That's definitely one aspect of it. Like I call them situating memes, basically adapting concepts that come from memes into physical spaces. And in a way that would contribute to the primarily digital conversation, but at the same time using these kind of interventions as a tool, both as an artistic, but also curatorial and basically an art mediation tool as well. Because I think there are some positions you can take as an artist that would actually get in between the institution's program and their operation, let's say, and the audience. For example, at Louisiana, there was a section in the museum where they exhibit their old exhibition posters. And I find these exhibition posters quite funny because they are like, Exhibition posters are basically a meme template in like how particular the information is. It could be something that is like studied. So I followed their design guidelines. I even worked with their graphic designers to make poster adaptations of memes. But in this, I didn't just use the images that are in the memes, but found new ones that would kind of have the same expression, but in a poster format that is like more realistic or like true to the poster format in a really like site-specific way. And then actually the messages that these Posters included were things that a museum would never say, like one of them was just two puppies playing with each other, and it said some artworks look the same. Or there's like a bus stop and it says, waiting to make an exhibition about today in 30 years, and so on. And I like the idea of playing this role, almost like a curatorial role in a way, that the curators don't have the space to do, and do these kind of other interventions that would hopefully open up the conversation. Like another one I did was in Balinche Gallery actually last year, and the museum was actually closed for renovations for like a couple of months. And I just came up with different excuses for why the museum is closed. Like the museum is closed due to birds nesting in the gallery. Thank you for understanding. Or like take some time to reflect or to give the artist some space and so on. One of them was due to reporting with the immigration agent, right? Exactly. So the immigration office in Germany has a specific name. So the museum was closed due to the artist's appointment at this office was another one. I think that was actually the most engaged one online, which was also very encouraging. It was nice to see. And I just found it interesting that like it kind of created this symbiotic space, as you said, because there was also no context in this exhibition. Like There was no announcement before it happened. We just started putting this out, both hanging them in front of the museum as a physical sign and also posting them on their Instagram. It kind of created a space where people could just say, what is this? And uh, there was this one comment that I cannot forget, which says like, oh, is this like one of those projects where I am the art? And then these are things you could never say publicly in a physical space. You could never go to reception and say, like, what is this? And like really get angry. And I think there is also like this zigzag I like to think of in different aspects, both in the format of memes and also how digital culture and physical spaces could feed off from each other. That was the outcome of this like party exhibition that basically built this like party meme where the person in the corner says they don't know, blah, blah, blah. And they built this out of screens as if you would be in that party, like as if you fell into a phone, basically. And then someone took a picture of this and posted it on, on, on another meme account with a different caption. 
for me, it was unexpected and very interesting to kind of find a way that this digital culture could find a place in a physical space and that physical experience could, again, feedback into the digital discourse. And that's kind of how I like to think of all of these projects. I do think it's interesting just, again, how all of your interventions in museums are like activating the stuff that's integral to the museum experience, but isn't necessarily the art, the advertising for it, the texts around it. And it really is like somehow through the medium of digital culture, the kind of classic project of conceptual art, just to examine all this stuff around the art as if it were part of the art, it returns. And I think that's a very fascinating thing. But just to return to something you just said about memes in physical space. I know you've described yourself as an evangelist for art memes in institutional spaces, but you're also very critical about how the art world has processed meme culture. So what's your critique? What are the big mistakes you see people making? I guess my first frustration I had before even doing any of these exhibitions was how the default way of people thinking about memes in physical spaces is to just make a print of it or like make a painting of it, which I strongly disagree with because what makes a meme isn't about what's in the image because the images are fluid, they could exist in different forms, but it's more about how it's circulated. And also the experience you have with it, like with your phone, in your hand, and how you can share it with other people. So once you make a print of it, no matter what size, you cannot interact with it in the same way. Or for me, making a painting of it almost assumes the superiority of physical art over digital art in a way that you make a painting of a meme so that it becomes valuable or tangible or so that it will be something that people will take seriously. And I really disagree with this on its like fundamental thinking. It's more like a remnant of a meme rather than an actual meme. And in all of these projects, I try to imagine memes as ideas and certain ways of engaging with people that require their own specific process to be adapted into a physical space. You did an installation that I thought was really interesting that was looking at this problem where you created these dummy cell phones, essentially so that people could look at this material as if they were in the space where it belonged, which is on the small screen. That came out of my realization of another problem in digital spaces, which is just the number of memes and how you can keep track of them. Those works, I call them bookmarks for the reason that like, they're not really meant to like, replace your experience on a real phone with a real meme. Each is like a dummy phone with a print of a meme in it and a QR code. And they had these magnets on them, like on their side of the screen. And they were installed on this wall. So you also had to like pick them up to be able to look at the meme as well. For me, that purely serves the purpose of a bookmark, a physical bookmark for a meme for you to be able to access it on a digital platform. Well, that gets into my very final question which relates to the actual final reason why I wanted to talk to you, which is that when I am lecturing, in general, the most common question, no matter what I'm talking about, after the lecture, some student will ask me some variation on the question, will there ever be a museum of memes? And I think that just reflects how for a lot of people, this has been really impactful culture. People have grown up with these formats, these jokes, participating in this kind of collective digital culture. And my answer to that is always to ask them, well, what would that look like? And that always becomes a really interesting conversation on what memes are and what art is and how you show them. But I just wanted to ask you, what do you think a museum of memes should be? What would do justice to the form? 
I think the problem with that question that it kind of has an assumption of a physical space in it that needs to emulate or like that involves like a, our current museum experience because I think many of the projects I do in physical spaces to kind of bring more recognition to memes, both as a form of art and also as digital folklore, uh, which is a term that comes from Dimor Schiffman actually, it was like a meme scholar. But this is also, I think, like a bigger problem with digital art in physical spaces too, that like somehow physical art in digital spaces, first of all, that like in a digital space, when you look at art, it should somehow emulate a physical space. And we kind of try to create these spaces within each other. But I think it's more, as like you said, like it's a symbiotic relationship that could be created. And it's more about creating literacy around this, criticism around this, so that people would engage with this more critically. And I think beyond that, it doesn't really matter. I think there could be different ways of doing it. But I think keeping memes digital in their origin, which goes into like digital preservation, which is like its own field, I think is very important. But beyond that, I think we don't have to come up with like a very utopian version of this, that we wear these space suits and fly into a meme or something. It's really about critical engagement, which I think all of these forms of conceptual art, like male art, street art now has. And that's my hope also for memes, both as a form of art and as a culture. Well, Jim, on that note, I think I just want to thank you for talking to me. It's been really illuminating and I'll be following you online. Thank you so much. And that is it for this week's episode. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to The Art Angle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast service that you can think of. Please do take a moment to rate or review us. I know it's an ask, but it really helps us out, and we are very, very grateful to our listeners who do so. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next week. (laughs) ¶¶